Well, you can open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians. Our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19 through 22. And the title is The Spirit and the Word, this sermon. And we're getting near to the end of this letter. We've been in Thessalonians since the beginning of November, and we're getting near to the end of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to start 2 Thessalonians in a few weeks, and so the series is not done yet, but we're getting clo- close to the end of Paul's first letter here. And I just want to briefly review this morning where we've been. First um, Thessalonians really has two sections. It's got three chapters of thanksgiving, and it's got two chapters of instruction. So, so you remember chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is writing to this group of believers that he brought the gospel to, but he was forced to flee from them early because of persecution, and, and he's writing to them because he has found out that they are doing well in the faith, that they're, that they're standing firm, that they're growing, that they're sharing the gospel. And for three chapters, Paul just writes thanksgiving to God for them. He, he just says, I'm so thankful for your love. I'm so thankful for your faith. I'm so thankful for your hope. I'm so thankful for your perseverance. I'm praising God for you for three chapters. And then in chapter four, he switches gears and he introduces the second half of his letter this way. He says, finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you recede from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. And so so he, he tells God he's thankful. He tells him he's thankful to God for their love and faith and hope that God has given to them through Christ. And then he calls them to walk in a way that pleases God. He says, respond to the grace of God in a way that pleases God. Respond to what God has done for you by living for his glory. We, we just saying it in response to confessing our sin and hearing that assurance of forgiveness. We, we, saying, we saying that, how could we thank you enough for how you have loved us completely? How, how could we? Because he has loved us completely in Christ, because Jesus bore every single sin that we deserve to die for, because he bore it all, and he saved us and called us into his kingdom and glory and gave us his grace. We say, we say, we want to live our lives for you, Lord. We want to give it all for you. And, and Paul calls them to do that. He says, walk in a way that pleases God. And then throughout chapter 4 and chapter 5, Paul just gives instruction after instruction in how to do that. So, so, so what is a life that pleases God? What does it look like? What is a lifestyle that gives glory to God? In chapters 4 and 5, we get, we get a picture of it. He says, please God by living a life of purity. Live a life of purity where, where you're not giving in to sexual immorality, but you are walking in holiness. He says, live a life of brotherly love. You love each other. Just keep loving each other more and more. Keep growing in your love for each other. He says, live a life of faithful witnessing where, where you, you live a quiet content life, you work hard, you work with your hands, you, you, you show the world that your joy is in Christ and not in this world. Live a life that even in the midst of sorrows you have hope, even, even in grief you have hope because Christ is coming back. Live a life that shows that. Live a life of sober-mindedness, live a life of watchfulness because the day of the Lord is coming. Judgment is coming on this world, so be vigilant and be a light. Live a life of, of upbuilding relationships where, where you are in the church and you are loving each other, you're, you're, you're upbuilding each other, you're encouraging each other, you're walking together, you have peace together. Live a life of joy, live a life of prayer, live a life of thanksgiving. This is a life that pleases God. This, this is what God has been calling us to for the last few months. He's been calling us to this, 
this lifestyle that is marked by these things, marked by purity and love and hope and peace and joy and prayer and faithfulness, this is what God calls us to as a church. This is a life that pleases God in response to what he's done for us. Well, this week Paul has one more instruction to add to that list. And this final instruction is the key to keeping all the other instructions. This final instruction is is necessary if we're going to keep any of the other ones. So let's read 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-22. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Let's read it one more time. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This text gives us two principles for walking in a way that pleases God. Two principles for walking in a way that pleases God. So if God has saved you, if, if God has called you out of sin to Christ... If, you, if your name is written in the book of life and, and, and out of gratitude and thankfulness you want to live a life that pleases God, you, want, you, you say, God, I, I give my whole life to you to walk in a manner that brings you glory until Jesus comes, then you need to apply these two principles to your life. And so let's look at them as we go through this text. The first principle is this. In order to walk in a way that pleases God, you need to walk in the power of the Spirit of God. In order to walk in a way that pleases God, you need to walk in the power of the Spirit of God. In order to walk in a way that pleases God, you need to walk in the power of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, we we saw this morning in our catechism question during Build, that the Holy Spirit is God. God is God. Three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Spirit is fully God, equal in worship, equal in essence, equal in honor. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is not a force. He is not not just some mystical spirit being. He, He is God the Spirit. He is equally God with the Father and the Son. He He is He is God. He has always been. And so, so when we even read this, don't quench the Spirit, you, you have to think to yourself, don't quench God, the Spirit. Make sure you're not thinking about the Spirit as a force this morning, but, but as a person who is to be revered and worshipped, who, who, who with the Father and the Son is, is glorious in creation and redemption forever and ever. Jesus promised the disciples in the Gospel of John, we saw this last year, that that after he ascended into heaven, he was going to send the Holy Spirit to them. The the, the night before Jesus died, he said, I'm I'm about to leave you. I'm I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm going to rise again. I'm going to go to heaven, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send him to you, and he's going to be another helper for you. And in Acts, we see this happen. The Spirit is given to all the believers And the New Testament tells us that the Spirit is given as a gift to anyone who puts their faith in Christ. If you are a Christian, if you've believed in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit inside you. He dwells in you. 
He lives in you. God says in his word that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit cries out in your spirit, Abba, Father. He's the spirit of adoption into God's family. And and the New Testament also tells us that the Spirit seals us. So, So when God gives you the Spirit, it's like he's putting a seal on your life saying, this one's mine. And, and, and nothing's going to take you away from me. The, the Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. And one of the main emphases of the New Testament is that the Spirit empowers us. The Spirit empowers us. Jesus said in Acts that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so the Spirit is associated with the power of God. All that is important to know when we hear Paul say, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. To quench something is, is, is to extinguish something. It, it, it's a picture of a fire. And to quench it is to, is to put that fire out. It's, it's to suppress something that, that, that's growing. It's just to push it down. It's to push its influence down. And, and Paul says, don't do that with the Holy Spirit. Don't quench him. Don't suppress him. Don't don't push his influence down in your life. Now, believers cannot lose the indwelling of the Spirit. Again, we're sealed with the Spirit. He lives in us. You cannot cannot suppress him to the point that he's going to say, I'm I'm out of here. No, the Spirit is, is the seal of God's grace on your life. And so you, you cannot send the Spirit away. But this verse teaches that we can stifle the Holy Spirit's empowering in our lives. We can stifle Him. We can can live and act in such a way that though the Spirit is a powerful fire in our hearts, that we push that fire down and we suppress Him and we don't let Him control and empower our lives the way that, that He was intended to. But here's the thing, if we quench the Spirit, we cannot please God. If you want to walk in a way that pleases God, then you cannot quench the Spirit. Because we are absolutely weak left to ourselves. Jesus Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he gave the Spirit, because apart from him, we can do nothing. The Spirit is the one who equips us to have power to please God. So, So if you want to walk in purity, if you want to walk in love, if you want to walk in faithfulness, if you want to walk in hope, if you want to walk in joy then you need the Holy Spirit to empower your weakness. This week, I got a pull-up bar. It's a new year, right? So anyone else have exercise resolutions this year? I gained my freshman 15 last year for the first 10 years after college, but but it's happening. So I got a pull-up bar. And, and, uh, you know, it's it's just the one that you kind of put on your door frame and uh, and saw it. We really don't have many door frames in our houses that would in our house that would work, and so we found one of the only ones that would work, and it's just right in the middle of everything. So I put it up, and and Lucy and Jack just run over and see me do one in there. They're like my turn, my turn, my turn, you know. And so, so okay, let's do this. And so my my real exercise is, is actually just doing this with them, right? But I get Jack and and I pull him up, and I say, okay, okay, buddy, hold, hold on, you know. And he he grabs on, and I quickly realize like he has. He has nothing going towards this. He, he's not doing any. He's not doing anything right now. Like he's he's not pulling up any weight. It's all it's all me. So, okay, okay, hold on. Then I just 
pull up, push down, pull up, push down, right? And, and, and then Lucy says, my, my turn, my turn. So I did the same thing with her and this back and forth. Then I got my exercise for the day. We are as weak as my kids on the pull-up bar, spiritually. We, 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 we cannot even hold ourselves up. We can't. We, we, we cannot do it. We, we, have, we have no ability to do what God has called us to do. But the Spirit comes under us. And, and the Spirit pushes us up and brings us back down. He holds us up and we can't hold ourselves. And he, he enables us to do what we cannot do. The Holy Spirit is our strength in that. We have no strength, but he gives us the strength to do it. Lucy and Jack are doing pull-ups. But it's completely me doing it with them, right? Now, I need someone to hold me up. I'm doing those. But the Spirit, that's, that's how he operates in our lives. We have, we have no strength. We could never do it. But he gets under us. And, and, and God says, walk in purity. And he gets under us. And he, and he pulls us up. And, he, and, and we can walk in purity by his strength. It's not our strength. It's his. And this is why he was given to us. Apart from the Spirit, we have no ability to obey God. We are completely weak. And so we hear this instruction, do not quench the Spirit, at the end of this list, because of this principle, in order to walk in a way that pleases God, you need to walk in the power of the Spirit of God. You cannot do it any other way. So before we go further, I want to to call you to do two things this morning. First, repent of self-reliance. Think about the things that Scripture tells us the Spirit empowers us to do. The Spirit empowers us to witness. The Spirit empowers us to have purity. The Spirit empowers us to put sin to death. The Spirit empowers us to love each other. The Spirit empowers us to pray. What of, which of these things are you doing in your own strength? You can't do it. Repent of self-reliance this morning. Repent of acting as if you have something to contribute to your good works. That you have something to contribute to the things God has called you to do. You can't. And then pray for the Spirit to fill your life. In, in Luke eleven thirteen, a few weeks ago, we were looking at this passage in our Wednesday night prayer meeting. And we studied Luke 11 for a little bit. Jesus tells a parable about a, a friend who has a friend come to his house and says, I, my, my friend needs food. Can you please give me some food? It's the middle of the night. He says, my, my friend needs some food. Can you please give it to me? And he says, I'm sleeping with my kids. I'm not going to get up and give you bread. But, but he just keeps throwing rocks at his window and keeps asking and, and finally says, you are so annoying. I'll give you some bread. It's the story. And he gives him bread. And Jesus says, I'll tell you, if anyone asks, he'll find. If anyone, if anyone knocks, the door will be opened. If you seek, you'll find. And then he, and then he says, listen, good fathers, when, when, when your children come and, and, and they say, can I have some bread? You don't give them a scorpion. You give them bread. And, and, and all these pictures he's giving us, he, he brings to this conclusion. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And so, Jesus, these parables, just generally speaking, are encouraging us to pray. Say, say, pray and keep on praying. But then He drives it in to to this point. Pray 
for the Holy Spirit. Ask your Father to, to give you the Holy Spirit. And, and, and those of us who are in Christ, we, we have the Spirit, right? So, so ask the Father to fill your life with the Spirit. Ask Him to empower you with the Spirit. And don't stop asking. Don't stop. Don't give up. Keep asking. Keep, keep going to Him and saying, I cannot do it on my own. I cannot defeat sin on my own. I cannot be a powerful witness on my own. I cannot love on my own. So you keep asking. You keep praying. You say, God, I cannot do it unless you fill me with the power of your Spirit. And so you repent of self-reliance and you pray for God to do that in your life. He's a good father. He's going to say yes to that prayer. He says, keep praying, keep asking. The door will be opened to you. So principle number one, again, in order to walk in a way that pleases God, you need to walk in the power of the Spirit of God. This leads to the second principle today. In order to walk in the power of the Spirit of God, you need to embrace the proclamation of the Word of God. In order to walk in the power of the Spirit of God, you need to embrace the proclamation of the Word of God. So, God has saved us. We want to please Him now with our lives out of gratitude. To do that, we need His Spirit, and if we're going to have a Spirit filling us and empowering us, then we need His Word, and we need to embrace His Word in our lives. Look down again at our text. It says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Now, these are not two separate instructions in Paul's mind, the Spirit is the one who enables prophecy. The Spirit is the one who, who empowers prophecy. And so what, what he's saying to them is, is don't quench the Spirit by despising prophecies. So, so, so this is how they were quenching the Spirit. The Thessalonians were quenching the Spirit by, by despising prophecies, by, by holding prophecies in contempt, by, by rejecting them, by looking down on them. Now this raises the question for us, Okay, what does Paul mean by prophecies, right? And we need to understand that question if we're going to understand this text. And so just consider this a, a little bit of a detour to help us understand where we're going here, but, but we just need to, we need to define prophecies this morning. We need to understand what Paul is saying. And I want to take some time to do this, not because there's no chance that um, my where I land on the different views is, is, is right and everyone else is wrong, not because I think that, but because I, I believe that's helpful to, to take time to think about how, how the scriptures fit together. And, and even if at the end of this little detour you, you, you say, I'm not sure, that's okay, because John MacArthur and John Piper and D.A. Carson, they all disagree on this. All right? So uh, they're, they're all good gospel-preaching, bible teaching people, and, and, and so all that as a disclaimer to say we, we want to understand as, as best we can what God has said here. And so there's really three views on what, what is meant by prophecy. All right, so I'm just going to lay them out for you. We'll, we'll talk about them. View number one, prophecy is preaching the Word of God. View number two, prophecy is speaking impressions from the Spirit of God. And view number three is prophecy is declaring revelations from God. Okay? 
So I'll say this again. Prophecy, number one, prophecy is preaching the word of God. View number two, prophecy is speaking impressions from the spirit of God. And view number three, prophecy is declaring direct revelations from God. Okay, those are the three views. People that we respect and, and, and learn from hold all three of those views. So none of, none of them are out of bounds, all right? Well, I do want to talk about them for a little bit to understand this text as best as we can. But let's look at the first one. Prophecy refers to preaching the Word of God. In this view, it's, it's, prophecy is, is, is the New Testament's way of describing what I'm doing right now. It, it's someone that stands with the Word of God and, and declares what it says. And, and, and prophecy is, uh, a very, in the Old Testament too, it, it's a... It's a telling of what God has said, isn't it? And so there are, there are analogies there to prophecy. But there are differences too. In, in the Old Testament, these, these prophets were, were not um, just expounding passages of Scripture. They, 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 were, they were receiving in some way revelations and, and telling those out. They were authoring scripture in many instances. And in the New Testament, we see that scripture distinguishes between prophecy and preaching a number of times. Scripture will, will, will describe prophets and teachers in the same passage as if they are different, different offices, different classes, different gifts. And so, so there, are, there are a few things with that view that, that don't quite line up as consistently with the whole of Scripture there. It's not, it's, not, it's not exactly analogous with what you see in the Old Testament for prophets. And in the New Testament, there's, there seems to be distinction between those roles. Now, the second one, prophecy refers to speaking impressions from God. So, what, what this view says is, and you guys have experienced this, you, you're, you're thinking about somebody, maybe you're praying for them, and, and God lays it on your heart that you, you need to call them and tell them something. Right? And there's different ways that you might have experienced Maybe Maybe someone's coming to you and says, I have a word from God for you. Maybe, maybe you've experienced that. Maybe it's, it's less intense than that, and someone just comes and says, I just want to encourage you. But, but whatever it is, maybe it's in preaching that, that, that God lays in your heart to say, say something that you didn't mean to say, or that you weren't planning on saying. Um, but, but you feel in that moment compelled to say it. That, so, so all of those, this second view would say, that's prophecy. It's receiving impressions from the Spirit of God as you go and speaking those impressions and encouragements and admonitions to, to the people of God. Now, there's a couple problems with this as well. One is, is again, it does not line up with the Old Testament form of prophecy. And so, and so we're redefining, we're saying the New Testament's redefining prophecy there. You're saying an Old Testament prophet is this, but a New Testament prophet is something else. And, and then also, these impressions, according to this view, can be wrong. These impressions can be wrong, and, and, and you might feel like you're supposed to say this to somebody, but in reality, that was, it wasn't true. It wasn't, it wasn't what God wanted for them, and, and the problem with that is that God calls us to test whether someone's a true or false prophet by whether what they say is true. And so if these impressions can be wrong in their prophecies, but, but what do you do if it's wrong? Then, then is that a person a false prophet? And so, so there's inconsistencies. You guys follow that? that now, now, what, what I'm not saying with either of these Obviously, we believe in preaching, right? We believe in, in opening the Word of God and preaching what God has said, telling what God has said. And we, we even believe, to some extent, in, in the fact that God guides us 
to encourage and admonish each other. He, he sometimes lays someone on our heart. He, he, he does guide that way. The Spirit guides us. So, so these, are both, these are both true things that, that we actually affirm. We just don't call them prophecy. So, so the third view, the, the view that, that Tom Schreiner defends and that I hold is, is that prophecy refers to proclaiming direct revelation from God. Prophecy refers to, to proclaiming direct revelation from God. And so in this view, prophecy means the same thing in the New Testament that it does in the Old Testament. An Old Testament prophet and a New Testament prophet are doing the same thing. They are receiving revelation and they are speaking that revelation. And we see it in the book of Acts several times. There, there, are, there are prophets in the book of Acts that, that declare something that God has shown them. We see it. We, we see it uh, multiple times in the Gospels and in Acts that, that God apart from his word, brings revelation, and, they, and someone speaks it. says, this is what God has said. And so it's analogous. At the same time, what, what those who hold this view would also say is that this gift has been fulfilled. This gift has been fulfilled already with, with the writing of the New Testament. So I want, I, want to, I want to show you something that I think will help with this. If you would turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, just a few pages back. In this passage, Paul is talking about how the church is built up and how Christ, Christ gives gifts to his church so that the church can build itself up in love. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so, so there in those two verses, we see four offices. We see apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, shepherd teachers is the word. We see four offices. And, and these offices are gifts from Christ to his church to build up the body of Christ. Okay, now turn back just a few pages to chapter 2 of Ephesians. Same book, same letter. Here, Paul is talking about how God has made one new humanity from Jew and Gentile, one people of God, his people, the church. And in verse 19, he says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay, so take those two passages together. And, and we get a picture of what Paul is describing about the church. We, we see that Christ has given the church four offices. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers, pastors. Now the foundation, the cornerstone is Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone. His, his life and his death and the gospel, that, that is the cornerstone of the whole structure. And then there's a foundation that's laid. What is the foundation? It's the apostles and the prophets, right? the apostles and the prophets. And we know because of what he's using prophets in this life, he's talking, about, he's talking about New Testament apostles and prophets. They are the foundation. We know, too, that apostles no longer existed after, after the original apostles. There's no new apostles. And in the same way, I believe there are no new prophets. The New Testament was still being written. What you don't see in the foundation is evangelists or shepherd teachers. They're not part of the foundation. 
They, they continue. Evangelists continue to go forward and, and preach the gospel. Pastor Jesus continue to shepherd the church uh, for, for the rest of the building of the church until Christ returns. But prophets and apostles are the foundation that are lined up with the cornerstone, which is Christ. I know that that's a lot to take in this technical, but, but here's, here's the point. Here's why it matters. Because when Paul wrote, you can go to Thessalonians again, when Paul wrote these instructions to the Thessalonians, you have to realize that that this wasn't written after the New Testament was written. This was written while the church was still being founded. The foundation was still being laid. The scriptures were still being inspired. This is one of Paul's earliest letters. And so Christians had the responsibility to hear these apostles and prophets and to discern, is God giving us new revelation? Is God speaking to us? Is he, he, this is part of the foundation that was being laid. So he's given these instructions because God is still laying the foundation. And they're a part of that. The reason we have the New Testament today is because Christians understood and they discerned which books were from God and which books were not from God. And, and, and you get, you'll, you'll find a report today on, on some History Channel special about, we found new Gospels, right? Well, these instructions are why we can be confident that there are no new Gospels. The church received the foundation. They discerned through the Spirit of God the foundation that God had laid, but, but the Thessalonians were in danger of despising these prophecies and of looking and saying, we don't need new revelation. We don't need, we don't need God's We don't need this foundation. He's saying, don't do that. You need this. Now, at the same time, it makes us wonder, well, what about, what about us? I mean, if prophecies aren't aren't existing then anymore, if they're not active, they've been fulfilled, then what does this instruction have to do with us? And that's where we realize that whichever view you take, the instructions he gives apply anyways. So, so no, what everyone agrees on is this. Let me, let me just say this. What every view agrees on is this. There's no new direct revelation from God. All three views would say there are no more prophets giving direct revelation from God to us apart from the word of God. But if you believe prophecy is preaching, if you believe prophecy is, is giving impressions, or if you, or if you believe it, it has ceased in that way, Paul's instructions are still the same. Don't despise them, but receive them. Don't despise them, but receive them. And, and so just whenever someone speaks for God, and, and this could be right now, in a sermon setting, this could be in a Bible study setting, this could be in a personal conversation, someone coming to you and saying, saying I feel like God wants me to say this to you. Paul would say, don't, don't despise it, don't push it away, don't look down on it, don't reject it. And he would say, receive it insofar as it's from God. But, but, but that, that leads to this, the next set of instructions here. So he says, don't despise it, but he doesn't just say, receive it blindly. As, as, if someone says, I'm speaking for God, he does not just say, okay, let me, let me have it, right? No, he says, verse 21, test everything Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So when someone says to you, I'm speaking for God, this is what you do. You test it, you hold fast to what is good, and you abstain from what is evil. Whether it's in a sermon setting, whether it's in a Bible study setting, whether it's in a personal conversation, if someone says this is what God has said, you test it, you hold fast to what is good, you abstain from what is evil. That's the opposite of despising. The opposite of despising is not receiving blindly, but, it, but it's testing, it's discerning. Don't despise, but discern. Don't despise, but discern. 
And so what tests should we use? He says, test everything, right? Test when someone speaks to you on God's behalf, test it. What test should we use? Well, if you would, just get your Bibles open here, all right? And we're going to look at three tests that Scripture gives us. First, turn to Acts 17. Acts 17. Someone says, God has said this. What should you do? Acts 17 tells us one of the tests we should use. In Acts 17, Paul goes to Berea. And he preaches the gospel to them. And in Acts 17, verse 11, it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed. So so Paul comes and he says, I have a message from God. I have good news from God. God has sent His Son, Jesus, into the world to save sinners from death and from hell and to bring eternal life. He he has paid for their sins on the cross. He has risen again. He's going to come back one day to judge. And what do they do? They don't say, well, He says it's God. He says it's from God, so I guess we'll believe Him. No, no. These Jews opened up their Old Testaments. They opened up their Bibles and they searched the Scriptures and they said, is what He's saying true? And this is the first test we bring whenever someone says something is from God. We, we open up our Bibles and we search the scriptures diligently and we say, is it true? Can we see it in the words of God? And this was the instruction for, for God's people for all time that, that, you, that you test it according to the scriptures. So that's, that's test number one. Now test number two, flip forward in your Bible to 1 John. Flip forward to the book of 1 John. You test for consistency with the scriptures, and then 1 John would give us a second test. 1 John chapter 4, John says, Beloved, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. So don't don't just believe it because they say this is from God. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And so that's the second test. You test, you test just with the Scriptures generally, is this what Scripture says? But then you test for doctrine. You test for gospel doctrine. Specifically, what do they believe and preach about Jesus Christ? Do they believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Do they believe that he was born of a virgin? Do they believe that he lived a righteous life, that he died a sacrificial death, that he rose again, that he ascended literally into heaven, that he is coming again to judge and that he will reign forever? Do they they believe that gospel? Do they believe that doctrine? Because if it's from the Spirit of God, they will confess that. And so you test the spirits not only with a general looking at the Scriptures, with a specific looking at Christ. And what do they say about Jesus? And the reason that's so important is because it is easy to defend something from the Scriptures without connecting it to Christ. People can do all sorts of things with Scripture. And it can be very convincing. But you need to look, well, well what are they saying about Jesus? Because Scripture is about Him. Are they, are they connecting it back to Him? And then the third test is in Matthew 5. Turn back to Matthew 5. Verse 
Matthew 5, verses 15 through 20, Jesus tells his disciples, sorry, Matthew 7, Matthew 7, 15 through 20, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Okay, this is so important for us in the age we live in. Okay, One of the tests that we should bring when someone says, I'm speaking for God, is what do their lives look like? What do their lives look like? Are, are they bearing good fruit or bad fruit? Are, are, they, are they Christ-like or are they not Christ-like? Do they show godliness or ungodliness? And listen, we live in an age of podcast preachers. We live in an age of, of celebrity sermons, right? And listen, they, they're so good. They're so helpful. I and so many of you have benefited so much from these ministries, but we don't know their lives. We can't apply this test to them. God did not intend for any one of you to be a follower of John MacArthur or of John Piper or of Tim Keller or Kevin. He, he, they're, they're not your leaders. They're, they're not, they're, and the reason is because you can't look at their life and you can't say they're godly. They love their families. They, they, they share the gospel. You don't know that about them. And so I'm not saying don't listen to them. Listen to them, benefit from them. But understand that the test that Jesus gives us to know whether someone's a true or false prophet is, is what fruit are they bearing? What fruit are they bearing? And so these are the three tests that you bring. Whenever someone says something that this is from God, you say, you say well, is it consistent with the scriptures? Is it consistent with the gospel? Do they proclaim Christ? And are they living like Christ? Are they living it out? So you, you, you do these tests. Next he says, hold fast what is good, abstain from what is evil. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now I want to point out here that you would think at this point, that this is what I'm expecting to hear. Hold fast to what is true, abstain from what is false. Because we're talking about prophecy, right? We're talking about word, the Word of God. We're talking about distinguishing what you're testing it, right? So, so you're expecting to say, if it's true, hold fast. If it's false, don't. But he says, if it's good, hold fast. And if it's evil, abstain from it. And, and we need to see something important here. That's that if it's true, it's good. And if it's false, it's evil. Let's take the doctrine of hell. Right? It's hard to just come at that doctrine and, and immediately say it's good. Because it doesn't feel good to us. It's for, for that, that people would, would eternally pay for their sins. That doesn't, doesn't feel good. But if, but if it's true, then it lines up with who God is and with His glory, and we can affirm it's good. We, we, we don't necessarily need, need to know all the reasons why is good, we can say it is good. And we read Revelation the other night on Friday night, and we saw the angels and saints in heaven praising God for judgment, saying it's what they deserve. Now, I don't understand that. I'm not going to claim to understand that, but I can affirm that if it's true, it's good. 
And if it is false, it is evil because it is, it is giving us a false idea of who God is. If someone's proclaiming something that's, that's not in the Bible, it's not just wrong, it's evil, it's sin. It's, it's not the real God, it's an idol that leads to hell. It's evil. And so, so he uses these terms and he says, hold fast to the good. Cling to it, don't let it go. Once you've tested it, if you find that it is consistent with the scriptures, it's consistent with the gospel, the person that's teaching it is walking in Christ's likeness, then you hold fast to that truth and you don't let it go. You cling to it, you build your life on it. It is the word of God. Paul said this to the Thessalonians earlier. He said, when we came to you, he says, you didn't accept us as preaching the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. They did that, and he says, keep doing that. Whenever someone comes to you and preaches the word of God to you and gives the word of God to you and speaks the word of God to you, and you test it and you find that it really is, then you hold fast to that word. You cling to it. You don't let it go. It's good. It's good, and you hold on to it. It's good. But if it's evil, if it's false, what do you do? You abstain from it. It's the same word that he used in chapter 4 for abstaining from sexual immorality. And there we said to abstain from sexual immorality is to not have anything to do with it. Don't touch it. Run the other way. It's the same thing we should do with false doctrine. It's the same thing we should do with false teaching. Don't have anything to do with it. Run the other way. Do not give it an inch in your life. Abstain from it because it's evil and it will lead to hell. So test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from evil. I want to make a few applications on on this point. First, don't underestimate your responsibility to discern. Don't underestimate your responsibility to discern. So each one of you is called to be able to do this. Each one of you is called to know the scriptures and to know the gospel and to know the people that are bringing you this teaching so that you can discern. And it is your responsibility to do that. And so, so you, that means you need to study the scriptures. It means you need, you need to learn the gospel more and more. It means you need to walk with the church. You need to walk with those who are, who are with you. And, and the reason I'm saying this is because I've seen people who I thought were with me, people who, who I felt like we were walking in unity, just all of a sudden... Just, just start following something that was blatantly false. Just blatantly false. And, and they, they underestimated their responsibility to discern. I think, I think that, that they could have heard anything. It was all about just how it made them feel and, and their emotions, and, and, and they just walked that way. They didn't, they didn't take seriously their own responsibility to be discerning. So don't underestimate your responsibility to discern. You, if, you, if you don't take it seriously, you could end up in false teaching. You need to be a discerner. At the same time, don't overestimate your ability to discern. Okay, so, so don't underestimate your responsibility to do it, but don't, don't overestimate your ability to do it. Because none of us are called to be lone discerners. We, we all have confused and deceitful hearts. And we all have itching ears. You know, Timothy tell, in Timothy, Paul tells us that, that people have itching ears that hear what they want to hear. And that's true of me and you. And, and so if we hear something we want to hear, 
and it's making our itching ears, we're scratching our itching ears, right? And, and we're hearing it, and we like the way we like what we're hearing. Then if we come by ourselves to discern, we're just going to go for it. We're just going to follow headlong into it because it's, because it's satisfying what we want to hear. But if we do it in community with each other, then someone else whose ears itch a little bit differently than ours, they'll come and, and, and they'll say, no, I don't think that's right. I don't think you're seeing that right. And so don't be a lone discerner. Discern in community with each other. Don't, don't overestimate your ability to make right discernment. Do it with each other. That's why we have home groups. That's why we talk about the sermons. That's why we have Bible studies together so that we're talking about the word together. We're not just lone rangers. Now third, don't blur the lines of distinction. There is good truth and there is evil falsehood. Don't blur those things. Don't call something that's evil good. Don't call something that's good evil. If God has said it, stick with it. Hold fast to it. Be bold in your witness. Be bold in what God has said. We live in a culture that is coming for every one of us at some point to say, did God really say? And you say, yes, God has really said that. And and, and be convinced of it in the scriptures. But then fourth, don't divide over non-essentials. Don't divide over non-essentials. So, you, so you, could, you could get a little overzealous in this discerning, couldn't you? And, and, and say, if, if, if my pastor or, or my shepherd or my home group leader doesn't believe every single thing that I believe about every doctrine, then, then we, cannot, we cannot join with them. And that's not what God calls us to. Even with this sermon, the, these views on prophecy these are, these are not things to divide over. Those, those are not false teachers. That, that, that is, and the thing is, those, even though they're different, no one is contradicting Scripture. No one is denying Christ. And I hope that the people that know them see that they're walking in godliness, right? But, but we, we don't want to divide in this discerning over non-essentials. We, we want to unite in the gospel, in the person and work of Christ, in, in the primary things of first importance, that this, this is what we rally around. And so we've had two principles today. We, we, we've had the first one, if you want to walk, if you want to walk in a life that pleases God, you need to walk in the power of the Spirit of God. And then we said, if you want to walk in the power of the Spirit of God, you need to proclaim, or you need to embrace the proclamation of the Word of God, right? And what we've not said is, is what's the connection between these two things? What What's the connection? What I want to do is just play a little Mythbusters here. Have you guys seen the show Mythbusters? You know, they just take something that is commonly believed to be true and they just show, you know, it's totally false, busted, right? And I've only seen that show once or twice, but I like the title. The Spirit and the Scriptures are not opposites. The Spirit of God and the Word of God are not opposite ends of the spectrum. They're not at odds with each other. You know, you, you, this is the myth. You hear people say that, that, that you're more of a word person. You're really into the scriptures, but you're more of a, a spirit person. You, know, you, really seem, you really seem to get the spirit, right? It's just not true. It's a myth, all right? It's a myth. Who wrote the scriptures? The Spirit of God wrote the scriptures. In 2 Peter 2.21 God says there, the Spirit inspires there that, that, that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit when they wrote the Scriptures. So, so, so here's 
point one to busting this myth is, is, that, is that the Spirit himself wrote this book. These, these are the words of the Spirit to us. They're not opposites. But then even more, what did the Spirit write about? What did the Spirit write about? He wrote about Jesus. Luke 24, 27, Jesus unfolded to the disciples in all the scriptures what it says about him. The Spirit wrote about the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And and here's where this all comes together. Okay? How does the Spirit of God empower us to walk in a way that pleases God? How does he do it? Through the Word of God, he leads us to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Through the Word of God, he leads us to see and behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And when we see that glory, when we behold that glory, we are changed, we are transformed, and we are moved and compelled to do the things he has called us to do. And so that's why the Word is not, it's not just about learning information from this book. It's not like once you've learned it, you don't need to hear it anymore because it's not about just learning. It's about seeing. It's about constantly seeing and beholding and savoring Jesus in the Bible. And the Spirit is the one who leads us to do that. And so so there's not Spirit people and Word people. The Spirit and the Word are one powerful force in your life leading you to see and savor Christ and walk in a way that pleases God. That's why Paul gives these instructions. Don't quench the Spirit because you need Him in your life. You need his power if you're going to obey God. So instead, don't despise prophecies, but receive what the Spirit is saying to you about Jesus. Press into it. Study it deeply. Discern it. Receive it. Embrace it. Behold Jesus Christ. And as you do, he will empower you to live for his glory. That's the message of these verses. So church, the last few months, we have received instructions. We've received instructions for the type of community that God calls us to be. Community of love, faithfulness, purity, prayer, hope, joy. How are we going to do that? We will be that community when we press into the Word of God as often as we can in places like this, home groups, Bible studies, together on our own with our families, the more we press into the Word, not just to learn it, but to see Jesus in it. As the Spirit leads us, He will empower us to live this out. And church, you're doing it. I just want to say you're doing that. You're living these things out. And so today the call really is to continue to do it more and more. Continue pressing into the Word Continue seeing Christ in the scriptures. Let the Spirit empower you for this. We're going to sing a song that just is a prayer that God would do this in our lives. And so let's stand and we will sing together as we close today.